I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the previous episodes, Chicken Man and Lieutenant J.D. Hudson Both painted a picture of their worlds, hustlers and cops. I slowly began to learn who they were as they continued to share their stories and how they became the central figures of an event that in many ways encapsulated the struggles of the times. In 1970, the consciousness of the nation was shifting. The United States was in the middle of the space race and the Cold War. The country was polarized over Vietnam and that intensified when the United States invaded Cambodia in April of 1970. Protests were sweeping the nation, and America's view of the war was shifting. In May of 1970, four Kent State University students were killed, and nine were injured when members of the Ohio National Guard fired on a crowd gathered to protest the war. It would seem that the nation was tearing itself apart, and these divisions would be amplified in the southern city of Atlanta, when Muhammad Ali, a black Muslim who had been barred from fighting after he refused to be drafted, returned to the world stage of boxing. All of a sudden, Atlanta throws its hat into the ring, to the surprise of everyone. We must understand that Atlanta is a new, sexy, kind of fast city with beautiful black people. My dad was really excited about this. This was the the cream of the crop, the most excited I've ever seen him. You know, we're going to live good forever after this. It's Bedlam in Atlanta. It's Mardi Gras. It's New Year's Eve. It's everything put together. From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Fight Night. I'm Jeff Keating. It was the dawn of a new decade in America. the nation's struggles would soon be magnified in one incredible event. The civil rights movement had swept across the country as Atlanta was becoming the Black New South. The anti-war movement had found a hero, Muhammad Ali, a young, confident Black Muslim boxer known as the Louisville Lip, who had resisted a war that many in America had come to see as unjust. Meanwhile, 
Jerry Quarry, the Bellflower Bomber, symbolized the Great White Hope. As the word spread that Muhammad Ali was returning to the ring, the national and international journalists sharpened their pencils and prepared for this event unlike any the city had ever seen before. Politicians and businessmen worked behind the scenes to formalize and strategize plans that would ensure a boxing license was granted for Ali. Gangsters and hustlers from around the country packed bags of cash knowing that gambling on this huge bout would be off the charts. This was a perfect storm forming over Atlanta, and everything was at stake. Ironically, this classic fight between Ali and Quarry landed in the Deep South, in the city of Atlanta. I wanted to find out how that happened, so I spoke with Los Angeles-based author and journalist David Davis, who recently penned a new book entitled Wheels of Courage. David had written an oral history about the fight that nobody wanted for Atlanta Magazine in 2005. So all of a sudden, Atlanta throws its hat into the ring to the surprise of everyone. And how this came about is Robert Cassell was a New York-based attorney who had had some experience uh, in the fight game. He had helped promote the Joe Frazier-Jimmy Ellis championship fight. He tried to get Ali back in the ring unsuccessfully and then had an idea, which was to call his father-in-law, a gentleman named Harry Pett, who owned a business in Atlanta, and called his father-in-law to say, hey, Dad, is there anybody out there in Atlanta that you know who could pull off a fight involving Muhammad Ali? And his father-in-law called back and said, if you're going to get anything done in Atlanta, you go through the state senator, Leroy Johnson. Leroy Johnson was the first black man elected to the Georgia state legislature since Reconstruction. He was an insider in the political world in Atlanta and also in state politics. Leroy Johnson was one of the first politicians to recognize that while Georgia was under the control of Lester Maddox, an avowed segregationist, Atlanta was becoming overwhelmingly black. And that's where the power was, with the people. He sensed an opening. Maybe, if he worked on this, he could get the Ali fight to Atlanta. Here's David Davis. So, Leroy Johnson, after talking to Harry Pett, searched the law books and found out that in Georgia, there was no state law governing the sport of boxing. In other words, there was a loophole. When he saw that, he sensed an opening and realized that the power to license a fight in the state of Georgia would be through the mayor of Atlanta, at the time Sam Massell, and through the board of aldermen. And Leroy Johnson was a very, very smooth politician who had made friends on both sides of the aisle and with African-American and white Americans alike. And he was allied with Sam Massell. He had helped bring out the African-American vote to help Massell get elected as mayor in 1969. And working with a close friend of his, Jesse Hill, who was president of Atlanta Life Insurance, they approached Massell and said, look, we can get this fight here. We can get a license for this fight here. We can bring... Ali down here, and we can have a barn burner of an event 
that speaks to the rising sense of Atlanta as a major league city. Here's Henrietta Antonine. She worked with Jesse Hill for 30 years, and she helped him behind the scenes to support Leroy Johnson in his effort to get Ali a boxing license in Atlanta. Jesse Hill was a giant in Atlanta. He was the president of Atlanta Life Insurance Company. He was a community activist. He was a highly professional businessman. He worked with the civil rights movement. He was chairman of the board of Martin Luther King Jr. Center. And he was one of the first African-Americans to be on the Chamber of Commerce. I was inspired when I started working for Atlanta Life, and I admired our president, who was very outspoken, who, who was involved in anything that involved justice and equality for Black people. Here's a man that was always looking for the injustices that were facing our people all the time. And he talked about how ridiculous it was that they were going to stop Muhammad Ali from fighting because of his his religious belief. And I hear I heard him discuss it more times than I can count. So he was one of them. He was one of the first to talk about uh, that was not fair and it was it was an unjust law and and he was against it. And I remember him saying that they were going to do something about it. So between Jesse Hill and Leroy Johnson lobbying Sam Massell, that did it. And Massell was convinced to give a license for the fight in Atlanta. And in exchange, he got a donation for an anti-drug organization that they had set up. So Leroy Johnson made an appointment to see Lester Maddox at the governor's office at the Capitol. And... The way he described it was that just before his meeting, the governor's son had been involved in a little bit of an incident, and the judge had ruled every person deserves a second chance. Here is State Senator Leroy Johnson. When the word got out that he was going to fight here, the question was whether or not the governor would stop him, whether or not Maddox would stop him. So I went to him, and I said, Governor, I got an opportunity to get a license for Ali to fight. And Ali doesn't know anything but fighting. That's his profession. And if he doesn't fight, he's going to have to go on welfare. Governor's opposed to welfare. At that time, Governor Maddox's son had gotten into trouble in DeKalb County. And the judge the DeKalb County said to his son when he came to the sentencing, I'm going to give you another chance. And I went to Maddox and I said, all I'm asking, Governor, is to give Ali another chance so that he can fight. That's his profession. And so Maddox said to me, and under that umbrella, give him another chance. He said, okay, on with the fight. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets 
that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even after Governor Maddox agreed not to stand in the way of obtaining Ali a boxing license, publicly, his stance did not change, nor did his support. This was revealed as several news organizations across the nation covered this story. Ali became a political issue rather than a heavyweight fighter overnight, the minute he refused to be drafted into the army. He tried to get out of the draft by saying he was a minister of the black Muslim faith, but the courts weren't having any of that. And after that, the people who run professional boxing in the United States stripped him of his heavyweight crown. Meanwhile, a group of Atlanta blacks and whites managed to get play a fight with Jerry Quarry to get him a license and bring the fight to Atlanta. Mayor Sam Massell proclaimed the fight part of Sports Appreciation Week. Governor Lester Maddox, though, had different ideas. He thought the whole thing was a disgrace and declared a day of mourning. I don't see how this fight could take place really anywhere in the United States of America by a man that has denounced his country's uniform and re- refused to be inducted into the service of his country. So I call for a day of warning because of this, that this tragic thing has happened in this United States of America where men have fought so long and their wives and children have sacrificed so much that this would take place in 
this great city and our great state, or even more than that, like I say, anywhere in the country. Now that I had an understanding of what was going on in the world around October of 1970, I also wanted to understand about the boxers that were about to face each other in the ring. Here's David Davis talking about Jerry Quarry and how he became interested in his life. I had done a long feature story on Jerry Quarry for the LA Weekly, and I was very curious about Jerry's career because it was one of those that you see sometimes in sports and in boxing, a career where the ability was there, but it just for whatever reason, whether it was timing or bad luck, he never quite reached the pinnacle of his sport, which in boxing would have been the heavyweight championship of the world. And it did happen that he was fighting in an era where there were some amazing heavyweight fighters, Muhammad Ali, of course, but also Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Ernie Shavers, just a collection of quality heavyweights. And Jerry was slightly undersized, uh, even for that era, and unfortunately never quite reached the pinnacle. Here's Dr. Hobson describing Ali's character as a boxer and a man. Ali was known as the Louisville Lip, prize fighter. Ali was not the typical archetype, you know, black buck archetype athlete. I mean, he was extremely, you know, smart. He had grown up in a middle-class home where his father was a mail carrier, his mother a school teacher. But he was, you know, big, he was charismatic, and he was, you know, fast with his hands. He was just a new style of boxer, heavyweight boxer. And he had a conscience. He had a conscience because he was afforded particular good things in his life in terms of his family structure. And so when he decides to not participate in the draft and he's willing to go to jail and then he changes his name to Muhammad Ali from Cassius Clay, of course, he's stripped of his title. And then he's really blacklisted in terms of where he could go and what he could do. When you take away a man's livelihood, it's natural that he would go into survival mode. But the choices for Muhammad Ali were extremely limited. Here's David Davis describing what Ali was facing around the country. Ali was in exile, so to speak, in the boxing community. He was stripped of his heavyweight title and no one would touch him. The big fight commissions... New York, Madison Square Garden, Vegas, Los Angeles. So what was he to do? How was he to make a living? And he struggled with that and did a play on Broadway. He was on the college lecture circuit. But all through this time period, his managers and business people affiliated with him, they searched for maybe they would fight on a Native American reservation you know, because that would be outside of a boxing commission. That didn't happen. They were going to maybe fight in Tijuana. That didn't happen. No one really wanted to take the chance because they figured somebody's going to jump up and file lawsuits and it's going to get ugly. Meanwhile, the heavyweight division was moving along with Joe Frazier. So the powers that be in boxing were waiting to see how all of this was going to be resolved either for Ali or against Ali. No one wanted to take a chance and advertise that they were promoting a Muhammad Ali fight 
because it would have been very, very unpopular with both the general public and the boxing powers that be. Here's Dr. Hobson explaining why Atlanta would be a perfect place to host this boxing event. There's a groundswell of things going on here, and this is called the Black New South. And so you must understand that Atlanta is growing. It has now become an entertainment city. And as a result of it being a sports and entertainment city, you mean you have the arrival of the, the, the Falcons, the Hawks, and the Braves. We must understand that Atlanta is a new, sexy, kind of fast city with beautiful Black people. Here's David Davis describing the scene as the fight and that big weekend approached. It's Bedlam in Atlanta. It's Mardi Gras. It's New Year's Eve. It's everything put together. And over the weekend, you had this influx of journalists and the fight crowd and all of the hustlers and bon vivants who could shake down to Atlanta for this fight. And it seemed that everybody congregated at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, which had just recently opened and was known for its trademark atrium lobby and glass enclosed elevators so that you could sit at the bar and watch the action of people coming down into the lobby and see what they're wearing or what they're not wearing and have another drink and celebrate what everybody assumed or most people assumed was going to be a Muhammad Ali victory. As the city prepared for this monumentous event, many citizens across the nations were still divided on their support for Muhammad Ali. Here's Dr. Hobson. You know, white America was upset with Muhammad Ali because they felt that he'd made boxing political. But the truth of the matter is that the body politics of what it means to be black, big and strong has always been a political kind of conversation. They saw him as a draft dodger. They saw him as unpatriotic when the truth of the matter is that Muhammad Ali was probably the most patriotic person in the United States because he believed in the American Constitution and felt like he had the right to protest or to assert himself on his terms. I mean, in a city that is 67% black at this time, of course, he becomes the embodiment of the brains and the brawn of what it means to be black, particularly in the black New South. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right before all the festivities in Atlanta began, Chicken Man was dealing with his anxiety as he prepared to pull this party off. Especially when he heard that engraved invitations were printed and passed out to a large group of hustlers and gangsters. So he got the idea to move the party without telling anyone and then letting people know at the last minute where the real party was going to be held. Here's Chicken Man telling JD from a tape recorded over 40 years ago about his plan. Let me tell you another thing that really made me aware. I had to go back to New York for something. I called a cab back to the train station downtown. Paulo picked me up. Paulo told me, he said, Gordon, you, man, do you know these people got out some invitations? I, I had no idea, because I wouldn't agree nowhere to have an invitation printed to give and me. And to give them to everybody. And to give them to everybody. So I said, what? Well, so when I go and talk, I stay in New York and I talk to them. So, they already did it now. So when I come back to Atlanta, I get the idea to move it without them even knowing. And when they come where it's supposed to be, then we'll take them to where it really is. Chicken Man starts to put his plan in motion by cutting a deal with a local thug who is hard up for cash. So a boy, a, a fellow right here, I don't know if they, probably, his name was Teddy Pollard. Used to be a little thug right here, drug user. So he about to lose his house. So this, this is a good way to bail his house out. I was going to give him the money to bail his house out. Pay him three or four notes or whatever to use the house three or four days. It was a blessing both ways. So we go and he, we go to setting up the basement. So now... 
the two or three days before the pop, before the, before the fire, a week before the fire, the people in New York sent some people here to build a crap table. And people come with all their material. They, want, they know what they wanted. So I had to go get somebody, a carpenter, who could do what they wanted. They know the lumber, they know everything. All they needed was somebody, a carpenter who could follow the instructions. So they built the crap table. But still, I'm playing, I'm on move because I'm getting more edgy and edgy for some reason. But when he decides to tell his buddy Fireball, who had asked him to host the party, Fireball was against his plan. So then next morning, I see Fireball, Fireball called me. I said, listen, man, we're going to move. I've already arranged. We're going to move the, the, the game, the crap game, from my house to another, another place. I got to take you by there and show you. But he got all upset. He said, no, man, I don't want to move. What the hell you going to move for? We want the crap game to be where the people are. People won't leave a party to go to the crap game. But if the crap game at the party, people gamble because the game is already there. So I said, well, but Matt, so I tried to, to reason with him why I would want to do that. But it was just against what he wanted to do. You know, I had second thoughts, but, but I said, okay. Now Chicken Man is back to where he started. He finally gets everything set up, and even though he still had a bad feeling, the party was ready to go. Here's Gordon Williams Jr. describing the scene. I went to the house prior to the party. You know, I was a young boy, and I was like, wow, they gutted the whole place. I mean, there was nothing in there but roulette wheels and card tables and crap tables, and I mean, that's all was in there, you know? And I was like, wow, this is incredible. He did it, and he pulled it off. Everything was working according to schedule. The pre-partying starts at Chicken Man's house, and things are rolling. Hustlers are dressed to the nines. Booze is flowing like a river. Money is flying everywhere. The party of parties. Chicken Man had a bad feeling for weeks. And now that he sees all the action at his house, he knows some shit is about to go down. He doesn't know when, he just knows. But he's in it, and he's got to let it play out. If so many people came in that house, I mean, niggas had on meek hats. I mean, I had, you know, and I thought I had been to a few places and saw a few things. But when I saw these niggas coming, and the girl, the girl told me, I got, I got, I, I actually got afraid then, cause you know, I, I knew the danger in the police kitchen, all us, all us together. Whatever we call what we thought we would have. I mean, people there, there, money. So I realized now that I'm in, involved in something. Here. But I think I know I'm gonna make some money though. You understand? Know because cutting five cents off a dollar and all these big crap fit. The biggest time, the, big, the only time I saw the boss shoot dice shot 3,700. That's 7,200 of a nipple. That's, that's quite that's a right. few nipples. That's right. Right there, one shot. That ain't the rest of the people better. I mean, it came like never before. Everyone was in for a fight. Muhammad Ali was fighting the rust from his absence in the ring, the pressure from his supporters to regain his title, and for his safety as thousands of death threats were targeting him and his entourage. Jerry Corey was fighting to prove himself as a championship boxer and to live up to the title forced upon him as the Great White Hope. J.D. Hudson was fighting to keep Ali alive 
since he was in charge of his security team in Atlanta. And soon, Chicken Man would be fighting for his life. Nobody knew that while this huge event was happening, a mastermind lurked in the shadows, preparing to take down the Super Bowl of parties and rob some of the most dangerous gangsters in the country. And it was all about to happen on Fight Night. Fight Night is a joint production from iHeartRadio, Will Packer Media, and Doghouse Pictures in association with Psychopia Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Will Packer, James Lopez, Kenny Burns, Dan Bush, Lars Jacobson, and Noel Brown. Supervising producer is Taylor Shacoin. Story editors are Noel Brown and Dan Bush. Written by Jeff Keating and Jim Roberts. Edited by Matt Owen. Mixing and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players. Additional music by Ben Lovett. Audio archives courtesy of WSB News, Film, and Videotape Collection, Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. Special thanks to Dr. Maurice Hobson and David Davis. Fight Night is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.